First Peter chapter five and verse number eight. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The last few weeks we've been talking about our adversary, the devil, and we learned that one of his primary goals is to bust up relationships. He's trying to destroy our relationship with God. He's trying to destroy our relationships with one another. We've already talked about the fact he can't destroy your soul. He's already lost that battle. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're secured him forever. And uh, he can't do anything about that, but he's going to work to bust up your joy. He's going to work up, work to bust up your relationship with God, your walk with God, your relationship with your brothers and your sisters in your church, your marriage, even the relationship you have with your kids, your coworkers. Satan just wants to drive a wedge between you and everything and everybody else in your life. And as we have already seen, he has quite a quiver full of arrows from which to draw. And uh, there's a lot of them maybe that we haven't talked about, but we've kind of settled on three. I think there are three arrows in Satan's quiver that work an awful lot of the time and cause a tremendous amount of trouble and damage in relationships. The first one we talked about a few weeks ago, his first arrow, is to get us to take offense at something somebody said. The offensive words of others. And how many people do we know who have been taken out of the race or taken out of of a marriage or whatever because of something that was said that they just uh, could not get past? The second arrow is an equally devastating arrow. It's it's, It's to get us to dwell on some past hurt, not something that was said, but maybe something that was done. Somebody did something that we just can't get over, or at least that's what he convinces us. We just can't get over it. Well, the third one, and the one I want to concentrate on today, is to convince us that we're just not getting what we want from the relationship. Convince us that our needs are just not being met. See, I'm convinced that if Satan can't trip you up with the words of others, or if he can't trip you up with some hurtful experience that he keeps telling you you can't get past, then he's going to lob this arrow at you. I'm just not getting what I want out of this relationship. You may have heard this story before. Uh, If so... Uh, just bear with me, but uh, I think it's illustrative here. I read once of a, of, a, of a man who went to the doctor. He'd been having all kinds of difficulties and troubles, and the doctor examined him very carefully and then called his wife in from the waiting room, told the man to go out. He wanted to talk to his wife alone, and, and so he said to the wife, your husband is suffering from a very, very, very rare form of anemia, and uh, if, if he doesn't have treatment, he's going to die. But but the, but the simple thing, or the good news is, it's a very simple treatment. What he needs is good nutrition. So here's what you need to do. You need to get up every morning, and you need to make him a really good breakfast. He needs to have, you know, eggs and sausage and whatever he likes, because that's what's going to keep him alive. That's what's going to help him. You need to make sure that he's got a good lunch every day. And every night, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, TV dinners. He's the doctor says, you, you, you need to really make him some good home cooking. He needs nutrition. And he said, and beside all that, because his very well-timed amen. Besides all that, because he is, uh, his, his immune system is so low, you really need to make sure the house is clean and there's no germs, so make sure everything is clean. You understand all this? And she nods her head yes. She'd been standing there mute the whole time. She nods her head yes. The doctor says, shall I tell your husband this or will you do it? She said, I'll do it. So she walks out into the waiting room, and the husband can tell by the look on her face that something very, very serious has happened. And he says, oh, this is bad, isn't it? What did he say? What's going to happen to me? 
And she looks at him with a quivering lip and she says, you're going to die. <laughs> we, we might laugh at that, but it illustrates something. It illustrates what I think is an all-too-common attitude which Satan uses as this third arrow in his quiver. We could call it the spectator mentality. It's the idea that we do what we do for what we're going to get out of it and not for any other reason. Whether it be with our walk with God, in our church, in our marriage relationship, in any relationship, we do what we do for what we get in return. And as long as we're getting out of it what we want, we're willing to serve. The idea of serving selflessly is foreign to many people. Just as the idea... Of selflessly serving her dying husband in this silly story was foreign to this fictitious wife. There are many ways that the spectator mentality is expressed. My needs just aren't being met, is one you hear often. There's nothing for me in this. I didn't get anything out of that. This is not what I signed up for. All of those are illustrations of this same thing. All are common sentiments. Uh, amongst this group of people who call themselves Christians and yet find themselves constantly moving from church to church. That's oftentimes the reason that they do. Statements are indications of a person who at heart may be a spectator rather than a servant, a person who has fallen prey to Satan's third arrow. And interestingly, I think these same statements fit very, very well in the reasons many couples give as, as, as why they leave spouses, why marriages break up. People leave spouses all the time because they feel their needs are not being met. People leave spouses all the time because they just didn't get anything out of the relationship. In our culture today, those are considered good reasons. They're considered normal, acceptable reasons for ending marriages and relationships. And yet, when viewed from a biblical perspective, we see them for what they are. Satan's arrow lobbed at them. What about our children? Do you, do, you, do you think that our children are immune to this kind of stuff? How about when parents make decisions related to church or relationships based on their needs not being met? Do not, do not our children then learn right from the start that such thinking is the way they should judge future relationships? And so Satan has lobbed his arrow at the mom and dad, and yet he's also managed to take the kids out at the same time with the same thing. Satan wants to destroy relationships. Your relationship with God, with his church, with your spouse, with your children, with everybody and everything. And he will use this arrow of what's in it for me. This arrow of I'm not getting what I want out of this relationship to do just that. And I guess it boils down to two competing words, two competing concepts, servanthood and spectatorship. Some people attend church, for example, because they understand that is what God wants them to do. As servants, regardless of any perceived benefit to them. Others attend church like it's some sort of classroom. And as long as they're learning something there, they'll continue to go. Or, or, or some sort of performance only continued if they're, continue if they're being blessed uh, by what they're receiving or challenged or feeling some perceived need met. And the same thing's true in our marriages. Many of us vowed to love and honor and cherish our spouse, and yet the minute the words escaped from our lips, we began cocking an eye toward them and trying to determine whether or not they were holding up their end. And if they're not holding up their end, our needs are unmet, and we want to bail. 
We could go on and on with this, but, but think about this. I challenge you to find a single verse of Scripture anywhere in the Bible that says we attend church so that our needs will be met. You won't find that. Or that we remain married so that our needs will be met. Uh, you, just, you just won't find that. I came across this interesting quote. I, I don't remember where I saw this, but I think it's a valid characteristic of, of some churches today. One person said, or wrote this, he said, The assistant to one renowned media pastor, when asked the key to his man's success, replied without hesitation, quote, We give the people what they want. And the person who was commenting on that said, This heresy is at the root of the most dangerous message preached today, the what's-in-it-for-me gospel. Now, I don't know where I read that, but I think it's a clear, clear definition of what we're talking about here today, this third arrow of Satan. It's another thing we could call it, the what's-in-it-for-me gospel. And it's been so effective on so many churches. And I know there's plenty of Christians, and, and, and I believe this room is filled with them, who would be appalled at that statement, we give the people what they want. But there are plenty of pastors and plenty of churches around who that's their commitment. They're more committed to pleasing people than they are to pleasing God. And uh, therefore they give people what they want. So I wonder this morning, has Satan ever lobbed that third arrow at you? Have you ever found yourself evaluating relationships based on what you can and are getting out of them, rather than on what you should be putting into them. Has the spectator mentality found a home in your heart? Have you been tempted to quit on God because you feel like the joy you once had was gone? Have you ever left a church or been tempted to leave a church because, quote, your needs were not being met? Have you ever found yourself looking at your spouse and evaluating your marriage in that way? She just doesn't do it for me anymore. I hoped he'd be this, but he turned out to be that. You ever find yourself doing that? Brothers and sisters, we're not ignorant of our adversaries' devices. These are all evidence of the same attack of Satan. And in each case, he lobs that arrow and he convinces us that we can do better. That's what he's doing. In each case... He's saying that it's all about our needs and it's all about our wants. If we only break off this current relationship, whatever it might be, and move on, we can find what we need. And it's all a lie. It's all a lie. Jesus said of Satan when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He, he whispers in your ear, you can do better. It's a lie. He reminds you of all that you are not seeming to get out of your relationships, and he soothingly sighs, you need more than this. Why not walk away? Go where your needs can be met. It's all about you. Do what's best for you. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. In our relationships, whether we're talking about our relationship with God, with his church, with our spouse, with our children, with our co-workers, with our boss, with anybody, the key to success is not selfishness. The key to success, my Bible says, is service. We don't succeed by looking only at what we can get out of it, but rather by pouring into it everything that we can pour into it. I one time drove a couple of hours to listen to one of my favorite preachers preach, Dr. Curtis Hudson. Anybody ever hear Dr. Curtis Hudson preach? He was one of my favorites. I don't remember anything he preached that night except for one thing. He, he mentioned in his sermon that there's a place in the Bible that he, he called the secret of success in a single sentence. And so I was all ears. And he turned to Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 41. 
that said, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. The secret of success in a single sentence. I've underlined that in just about every Bible I have ever since. It's, it's, it's all about serving. It's not about self-seeking. It's about what we can do for others, not about what others can do for us. Jesus said some things along these lines. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you in Matthew 6, 33. Make serving the first thing, and God will take care of all the other things you think you need. He said in Matthew 7, 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's what we usually call the golden rule. And it's the exact opposite of this trash talk Satan is whispering in our ears. This arrow that he's lobbing our way. He tells us it's about us. Jesus says it's about others. Put them first. Serve them. Meet their needs. Do to them. And let the Lord worry about your needs. And by the way, he's pretty good at meeting our needs. And of course, in all this, Christ is our example, isn't he? Think about some of these passages. I'm going to read you a couple passages here and see if you can find a single place where he's talking about what's in it for me. You won't find that here. Luke chapter 22, for example, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves. He's the example. Supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet... Taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is our example. Apostle Paul's another example. He said in Acts chapter 27, verse 23, There stood by me this night the angel of God, whom I am, whose I am, and whom I serve. Read the epistles and you'll find that probably Paul described himself as a servant of Jesus Christ more than anything else. Jesus made this plain over and over. He, he described the clear distinction between his idea of servanthood and the world's or the devil's idea of spectatorship in his Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew chapter 5, If ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? If ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven 
is perfect. Think about what he taught there. He taught there that doing things for the benefits we receive is not a Christian concept. It's a worldly concept. It's a satanic concept. He pointed out that publicans who were despised and hated by absolutely everybody would love others if they were getting something out of it. He was saying the Christian has a higher standard. We are not spectators. We are servants. We do not serve for what we get out of it. We serve because the love of Christ constraineth us. We serve because we love the Lord. And it's what he asks of us. Now, let's be clear. There certainly are benefits to serving God. I stopped reading in Luke chapter 22 at verse 27. Let me, let me keep on. Just two more verses in Luke 22. He said, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He said to the disciples, I want you to be servants. And then he said, There is going to be reward. There is going to be reward. There is benefit. Every need we have now and forever will be met in Christ. I don't mean to leave you thinking that we serve like slaves for nothing and that there is no reward. Certainly The rewards of Christianity are huge. They're immense. They're wonderful. They're eternal. They're beyond our wildest imaginations. I have not seen, nor have ear heard. Neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them which love him. I love that verse. I love that promise. There is reward. There is benefit. But we look to the future for that. Might happen in this life, but we look to the future for it. And even if God showers us with blessings in the here and now, and sometimes he does, it's never to be the reason we serve God. We serve God regardless, regardless of any benefit to us. Jesus said, likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. A few years ago, you might remember that D.L. Moody preached here. Anybody remember that? Dwight? Lyman Moody, of course, he's been dead for a few years, but he preached here anyway on Old Fashioned Sunday. read a story about D.L. Moody once. Let me read it to you. It says that a large group of European pastors came to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. Following the European custom of the time, each guest put his shoes outside his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. But, of course, this was America, and there were no hall servants. So walking the dormitory halls that night, Moody saw the shoes and determined not to embarrass his brothers. He mentioned the need to some ministerial students who were there, but met with only silence or pious excuses. So Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up the shoes, and alone in his room, the world's most famous evangelist began to clean and polish the shoes. Only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of the work revealed the secret. When the foreign visitors opened their doors the next morning, their shoes were shined. They never knew by whom. Moody told no one, but his friend told a few people. And during the rest of the conference, different men volunteered to shine the shoes in secret. Perhaps the episode is a vital insight into why God used D.L. Moody as he did. He was a man with a servant's heart, and that was the basis of his true greatness. God wants servants. Servants. Our churches fail because of lack of servants. Marriages go down the tube because spouses forget their vows of service and concentrate on only what they want out of the relationship. Children are disillusioned because their parents are even more selfish than they are, and the cycle just goes on 
and on and on. Satan flings the arrow and he laughs. Where are you in respect to these thoughts? Have you ever experienced Satan's third arrow? Where are you with respect to these things? Let me ask you some questions that might help you evaluate whether or not you felt it aimed at you. Let me ask some questions that might help you to determine whether it's been aimed at you with respect to your relationship with God or his church. Were you once gung-ho for Jesus? But lately you don't feel that same zeal and you're beginning to wonder why you bother with trying to live for Jesus at all. Is that you? Has it been a long time since you've seen an obvious and open and wonderful answer to prayer? And you've entertained a hiss in your ear. Why pray at all? Doesn't seem to work. Why do it? Have the invitations of lost friends and family to go places and do things that you know interfere with what God wants from you become more and more palatable to you? Do you find those invitations becoming harder and harder to say no to? Is that you? Are you more interested in serving God today, serving Him just for the sake of serving Him, rather than for any personal benefit to you, than you were last year at this same time? More or less? When you read of ministry needs in our bulletin or anywhere, you know perfectly well you could respond. You know perfectly well you could help fulfill those needs. Do you quickly just whip right past that part of the bulletin because you don't think that ministry would be fulfilling or fun enough for you see i think all those are just thought starters to get us thinking whether or not we really are responding to satan's what's in it for me gospel or satan's my needs just aren't being met arrow and let me ask a few questions about your 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 relationship with your spouse maybe that might help you to evaluate it in that area Are you more aware of the things she does not do for you than of the things you do not do for her? Is your mind more preoccupied with what you think he used to be and do than what he is and does today? Have you allowed a day to go by, maybe even multiple days, without doing something, anything, truly loving and kind for your spouse? Not so they will do something loving and kind for you, but just because. How long has it been? When you hear the preacher preach about the responsibilities of husbands and wives in a marriage, do you find yourself cocking a critical eye toward your spouse and wondering why they don't hold up their end rather than really thinking about why you're not holding up your end? We could go on with this, but all of those are the same types of questions, aren't they? They're all questions to get us to think whether or not Satan might have hit us with this spectator mentality, this third arrow in Satan's quiver. What's in it for me? If that's a reason people leave churches, and it is, and if it's a reason why marriages fail, and it is, if it's a reason why our children become disillusioned with the faith, and it is, and we need to learn to avoid that arrow. And my Bible tells me we don't have to let it hit home. Jesus, when tempted by Satan in the wilderness, dealt with it perfectly well. He allowed that serpent to hiss for a while, and then he finally dispatched him 
He said, away with you, Satan, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Or as our beloved King James says, get thee hence, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus told him to go lost. He said, go back to the pit. He said, hit the road, Satan. He said, go to hell, Satan. And you and I have the same exact ability. James wrote in James chapter 4 and verse number 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise you can take to the bank. Resist the devil and he will flee to you. Jesus told him to get lost and the Bible says in Matthew 4:11, then the devil left him. And the same thing happens for us. The same reality is ours. Fend off the arrow. It will not find its mark. Resist the devil and he will flee. So let's sum it up. We've been talking for several weeks now about three things Satan often uses, three arrows. We started out learning arrow number one, the offensive words of others. We moved on to number two, which was the victim conflict complex, something that has happened in the past. We just are unwilling to get, get past. And now today we see arrow number three, the spectator mentality. And I hope... I hope it's been clear that in each case, if we allow that arrow to hit, if we fall prey to Satan's attacks there, we face the very real risk of damaged relationships. If we allow ourselves to be hindered by the offensive words of others, if we fall prey to the victim complex, if we allow past hurts and experiences to influence our present behavior, or if we, like so many today, allow the spectator mentality to color our relationships and our activities, those relationships are damaged. Christ's work is damaged. And Satan wins a victory in our lives. So I want to pray. Or I mean, I want to challenge you today to pray. Pray about all three of these things. I believe the health of Friendship Bible Church is at stake with this. I believe the health of your marriage depends on it. I believe that, the, that your children will be influenced how you respond to these attacks of Satan. I believe your brothers and sisters in your church will be influenced by how you respond. Your neighbors, the lost and seeking, uh, will be influenced by how you respond. Our unsaved family members will be looking at us to see how we respond. This rotten, sin-enslaved world needs to see something that works, something that is real. And that something is the life of a Christ follower, a Christ follower who is not offended by the words of others, who is a victor and not a victim, and who is a servant rather than a spectator. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour.